Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. This is the month of love, and always this month, I talk about, yes, love, but really love of yourself, taking care of yourself. And truly, I really want to chat about taking care of the caregiver. This is so important to me. Every year I do this, and it, it's the time when I talk about stories of faith, stories of growing your courage, being brave, uh, taking that step out. And, you know, not just moms, dads, non-traditional caregivers, just really being, being that person who is, you know, just taking that first step. I know that um, there are lots of stories that I'm going to tell this month that I am telling this month that if you've been looking, li listening to this podcast and looking at my ugly mug for the last four years, you've heard them before. Um, and that's okay. Cause some of you have not been coming. So welcome, welcome to this podcast and welcome to my stories, <laughs> but I hope that they do inspire you to try something, to be brave, to, um, you know, when I, I get a little misty when I hear that, be brave, because we, we said that to Elizabeth, be brave. And she was, she was brave. But there were a lot of people who told me to be brave too. And who really, needed to tell me to take care of myself during this time. During the time when I was caring for Elizabeth and Caroline, during the time when we were raising her. And I was just uh, telling someone the story about my husband, Mark, and how in the beginning, when we first got together, it was crazy because Elizabeth was actually actively dying at that time when we were telling her to be brave. And things were out of control in our house. Um, and he said to me, we're gonna start sending the laundry out. And I was like, what? No, I need to do my laundry. I need to do all of our laundry. How could you send my laundry out? Um, because he said, who cares who does our laundry? And who cares what it costs? And I was like, you know, we're like literally going bankrupt. I seriously actually did end up filing for bankruptcy at this time. I almost lost my house. Um, it was uh, really bad. I, I, I hit rock bottom, but my family was the most important thing. Who cared about my credit score? Who cared that a lot of my... <laughs> clothes, you know, got ruined. Um, the laundry got done. We had clean things to wear and somehow we all survived. And it didn't matter that I wasn't the one doing it. So that was a lesson learned. And that's why in the month of February, I talk about loving yourself and loving the caregivers around you. So important. So this month, please, if you can do something for yourself, do it. And I know that people like talk about, oh, have a spa day. You know what? That's not possible for everybody. 
take a walk, go out with your dog or, you know, just walk around the block. If, if all you can get is five minutes, do that. You know, for some of us, it's not about taking a bubble bath. Sometimes it's just about, you know, sitting out on the porch for five minutes and having a glass of iced tea, or maybe you get to read one chapter in a book. Um, if you can, try to stay away from the screens, the TV and the iPads and stuff. I know that it's, it's nice for some of us, but try to do something that actually does unwind your mind. Maybe pick something that is a little bit healthier. You know, have a healthy snack. Um, say a prayer, do some meditation, do a little stretch. Find, you know, the time to call a friend you haven't talked to in so long. Call somebody across the country. Uh, you know, just reach out, join a group. Um, there's so much you can do online now that I didn't have when my kiddos were growing up. It's so great. So that's what I want you to embrace this month. And my uh, podcast guest this week embraced that. Lois Letchford, she didn't discover that she had dyslexia until she was 39 when she was facing this issue with her son, Nicholas. Examining his issues with reading really brought to light her own reading failures. And the results that she had with her own son were very dramatic. Now, I know that she's coming at this from a, a place of privilege. And in fact, people have commented on that and people have you know, really criticized her for that. But that doesn't take away from her bravery and her accomplishments. She went decades ago, head to head with a school system that was having none of it. And frankly, she was brave. She was a fierce advocate for her son and herself. And she chased a dream for him. And he ended up receiving a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford University. Her story is really really intriguing and you know i hope that it will be something that inspires you you know i don't really like that inspiring word but you know that that gives you an idea or that gives you some thoughts about how you can turn a situation around or um will bring you to you know, the next step that you can take for yourself. Her book um, was really great. And um, she she's really not only, you know, really enjoys her own success, but really revels in her son's success as well. And I would really enjoy hearing what you think about Lois's book and about um, her, her memoirs. I'm sorry, I should tell you what the name of her book is. It's Reversed, a memoir. Um, 
And, you know, what you think about her journey here and whether this is the inspirational story and whether following along this journey is something that is inspirational to you. I'd like to kind of shake up this podcast a little bit. I've been doing a little mix match here of, you know, some sort of memoir, personal inspirational stories with some um, of my own stories and then mix in with some professional, you know, let's talk about planning. Let's talk about, um, you know, what is dyslexia? Let's talk about what is, what is an estate plan? Let's talk about, um, you know, different techniques of this, that, or the other thing. And I'm trying to figure out now, you know, as we get four years into this podcast, what is resonating with all of you? So I'm going to start sending out some polls. And I really want to know as we get through this season, this spring, what do you guys want to hear from us? We've got a really wide listening audience all over the world. And while I love that we're getting great reviews. I love that we're getting lots of good hits and you guys are hitting the five-star buttons. That's great. But I want some more detail from you. I want to hear what do you, what's resonating with you? What do you want to hear from us as I go out looking for guests? You know, is it the personal journeys that are, that are, you know, really hitting home for you? Do you want to hear more from me? Annette Hines, do you want me to talk more about the professional stuff, the, you know, the, the tools of the trade. Do you want to, you know, have this be more of a teaching podcast? What can I do for you? So please, you know, enjoy Lois's story. Um, enjoy the journey that Lois talks about in her book, Reversed. Let me know. I am just so excited to hear from you. And here we go. So Lois, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, as my audience knows, I've come back to this topic multiple times. Why? Because it's been my own personal journey. It's something um, that has really impacted my life in so many ways, good, bad, ugly. Um, and you know, you can't say dyslexia and really understand what that means it's not black and white. It's not the same for every person. So thank you for coming on the show, Lois. So glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for allowing me to share my story. <clears throat> What's interesting about my story now is that I'm old. And <laughs> my, my son and my story are a long-term case study. So if you are in a parent in the middle of this journey, take a look at what I've done and I think it allows you to breathe. Yeah. Yeah, that's so great. Um, you know, it's interesting because your dyslexia came to light when you were 39. Me, I didn't get diagnosed till I was in college. So I feel some kinship to you on that. I, I often wonder what would have happened to me if I got diagnosed early. Almost, I think it would have been worse for me actually than better because I feel like my brain kind of solved its own problems. I found all these workarounds. Other people I know say that if they hadn't been diagnosed early, it would have been horrible for them. So I think it's just different for everybody. 
So um, yeah, you didn't get diagnosed till 39, but then that was because you were facing issues with your son, Nicholas. So tell us about that. My son, Nicholas, was born 8th of the 8th, 1988. Wow. <laughs> so he, you know, he's got this incredible birthday and he, and he looked like a normal child. My first son, I have three sons. My first son learns at the speed of light. The second boy, Nicholas, had ear infections from the age of eight months to 18 months. And what I didn't know was how that impacts the brain, brain growth and language development. Yes. Problem number one. In addition to anything that came genetically. So, you know, I'm undiagnosed as a learning disability and I marry this incredible man who was the top of everything. <clears throat> so he's really smart. And so, he, you know, the eldest goes to school and he's fine. The second one goes to school and on day six of school, I spoke to the teacher and I said, how's he getting on? Because I was worried about him. Mm -hmm. And she threw up her hands and said, well, I don't know how I'm going to teach him this year. Oh, Oh, my. In hindsight, how I wish I had removed my son from school that day. Mm. I didn't. I sent so, him. So many of us can relate to that, Lois. You know, we have a lot of regrets and wish we had listened to our gut, wish we had seen the warning signs. Um, truly. But please go on. I. I, that's a whole nother story. Mm -hmm. I didn't withdraw him from school because I had a two-year-old at home and I knew Nicholas needed one-on-one -on -one attention. Yes. End of story. So he goes to school every day, terrified. I didn't know how bad it was and the teacher's shouting at him every day. The end of the year, he gets tested and the testing reveals he can read 10 words. Normally students have a thousand words. He had 10. He's got no strengths. And above all, Mrs. Letchford, he's got a low IQ. Expectation instantly is this child cannot do anything. Mm -hmm. As I said, my husband is this incredible man and he uh, has a PhD. He teaches at the university. And in the following year, 1995, we follow my husband to Oxford, England, where he has study leave. And I, the boys come with me and I take Nicholas and I said to Nicholas, do you want to go to school here? And I just watched my little boy. I watched the blood drain from his face. Oh, because we know what school means for him. Yeah, of he can't. He can't understand. They're going to talk with different accents and hit panic. Panic really inhibits the brain. So <clears throat> I said to him, no, you, okay, you and I'll learn at home. So we did. And I had set up something. I'd set up, found this book that was called Success for All. And I start using it with him and it's got isolated words on the page. He used to decode the words and remember the words and then get to the end of the page. You start again at the beginning and it's all gone. It's all gone. There's nothing there. He's got no memory for words. Mm. I get what's your reaction is to blame the child. My mother-in-law was with us at the time. And she said to me, Lois, 
put away what's not working and make learning fun. Oh, so smart. <sighs> what, what a relief to be given permission to say, Lois, it's not working. Don't worry about it. Do something else. And so I thought, what can Nicholas do? Nicholas can rhyme words and he can see patterns. I'll write a little poem for him. Me, I can't write, can I? Because <laughs> I'm dyslexic, I've never written a thing. So, but I came up with this little poem and I thought, that's all right. And I did it with Nicholas. And instead of Nicholas being panicked, there's relief. <laughs> I'm reading it to him. He's laughing. We're finding the rhyming words. He's loving this. And he illustrates the poem with my mother-in-law. That worked. Try it again. Another poem and another and another. And we just keep going. And I keep writing and writing and writing. And these are phenomenal little poems. And poetry is unbelievable because it's high-level language. It's also rhyming words. So you're getting two things going on together, a simple poem with big ideas. And I wrote a poem about Captain Cook because you've got the words cook, look, and book. And Captain Cook was the last of the great explorers. As you can hear from me, I'm Australian. <laughs> so Captain Cook was really important in Australian history. The Aboriginals would say all sorts of things about him, but he completed the mapping of the world map by completing the map of Australia. And I wrote this poem Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. And the poem goes on. What does it mean? Well, there's this huge ocean that Cook had to navigate. <clears throat> a lot of discussion going on in addition to reading and comprehending. And while we're doing this, Nicholas says to me, can I see Captain Cook's original maps? <gasps> You got him. You captured him. That's all you needed. And then he said to me, and who came before Captain Cook? Oh. Well, that's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. Seven-year-old Nicholas says, and who came before Columbus? I am blown away because I have never even thought about who came before Columbus. So now he and I are on a journey of who came before Columbus. And if I read anything to Nick, I've lost him, lost him, lost him, lost him. Can't do it. So I have to read it, turn that information into a poem. Right, 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 right. Okay, Lois, I have to know who, who came before Christopher Columbus. Was it Sir Francis Drake? That was after. Oh, geez. Columbus was the first guy who went across the Atlantic that we know of. It wasn't the Vikings? The Vikings came in the 10th century. You're right. But they left no records. Ah, okay. That's, that's a big deal that we left no records. The guy who came before Columbus was actually a man called Ptolemy who lived in Alexandria in Egypt never left Alexandria and Alexandria at the time had this incredible library for the world he drew the first map of the world wow and what happened was drew the map of the world 
leaving out Americas. He drew the world they knew. Now, what's fascinating, and this is in my book as well, is that a man called Arachnocenes, who lived about 350 BC, said the world is a globe. It's like an orange. And he measured the world accurately. Ptolemy underestimated the size of the world. And because Columbus then used Ptolemy's map and not the uh, measurement of Arathacenes, he underestimated the length of time it would take to go across the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, yeah. Okay. So all of this was really important for Nicholas. And what, because we are in Oxford, this incredible city of learning, we go to the Bodleian Library, huge library, second biggest library in the UK, and we say, where would we see a Ptolemy map? Yeah. Well, turns around behind the counter, picks up a book and says, here's a book of Ptolemy maps. That will be five pounds, please. Wow. And my son drooled over these maps. That's amazing. So it just, just goes to show how different learners, different learning styles, and you did it just by bringing him home and homeschooling. Now, of course, that doesn't work for everybody. But so getting back to your journey, okay? Yeah. And of course, results were dramatic. But how did you realize that you were dyslexic? While we're in Oxford, I'm reading this little book about dyslexia. 20 symptoms. I have 17 of them. <laughs> Did you actually do the testing? No. You just self-diagnosed? Yeah, it's self-diagnosed. I Dyslexia comes with all sorts of buckets. I would be too embarrassed. I would be too humiliated. I'm afraid it would say, you're just stupid. And here I am. I turn 67 next week and I nearly cry over that. Because mm -hmm. that's the legacy of growing up feeling you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then you have a master's degree and teaching degrees. Yeah. And writing, you know, I, I wrote a book. I wrote the book with uh, a young lady who helped me write it and it was phenomenal. But writing is my downfall and it's humiliating that I don't pick up things even with Grammarly. You know, it's, yeah. it's any, you know, anyway, that's my saga. But what I wanted to say was, you know, we go back to Australia because this becomes the critical component. It was yeah. one thing to teach Nicholas and have him be, you know, loving learning and learning to read. And I found this book on decoding. All sorts of things happened in Oxford. We returned to Australia and I spoke to the lady who'd done the testing the year before. And I said, these are the questions. This is what's happened in Oxford. She stood in front of me. She put her hands on her hips and said, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. I walked away from that school humiliated and demoralized within hours I was back at that school and I said to that lady you can call him whatever you like but if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching don't expect him to learn like everybody else that's the starting point 
of my formal journey into teaching. I knew what I had done in Oxford was unbelievable, but it needed to continue. And I supported Nicholas at home. I sent lessons from home to school because I then didn't trust the reading teacher. Yeah. But I mean, he's become so successful. I mean, let's talk about that. You know, he he's a PhD at this point. You know, he's a he's a six, just wildly successful young man. Um, well, not even a young man anymore, really. He's that's right. He's yeah. a you know almost middle aged person. Yeah. Um, and uh, and he went to Oxford. I yeah. love that. <laughs> extraordinary extraordinary journey kind of full circle I love it um but tell me tell me um tell me about the the story about when you talked to him in 2018 about his early learning what happened I love this story I thought you know I've never really talked to Nicholas about what happened in first grade so now he's, you know, he's got his PhD, he's doing a master's degree, he's confident, he's articulate. And I said, Nick, what happened in first grade? My son cried. His tongue went round and round in his mouth and not one word emerged. The first time I realised leaving him in school was a traumatic experience that we had not dealt with. And when children go to school and they fail, there's there's a piece that we do have to deal with. Um, I don't know if teachers realize this, and I think it's better today. I really do. I think teachers are learning more. I think they're doing better. I think they're trained better. But school can be a very traumatic place for our kids. and. you know, there's a lot of talk about trauma-based learning. education and learning. And I don't know how well it's being implemented right now. You would probably know better than I do, Lois. But I, I tell you, I, I see so much in the adult world, because that's where I live mostly, is in the adult world. And I don't see a lot of young adults or or even middle-aged adults who are you know healed (laughs) or even on a healing journey and so I'm not thinking that they're getting a lot of uh trauma-based education and I think uh I think there's still a lot of trauma being inflicted in the educational system yeah I think you're right teachers are better trained and certainly far better informed the problem is that they still expect a whole range of children to be able to do everything within a certain range you know within a standardized program and that's a problem so do you think that we're still not acknowledging the trauma that's happening yeah and when we send children home in tears and they can't do it we've set them up for trauma and for failure. And that's are, we, are we still telling them that it's their fault, that they're wrong, that they're bad? I, I, I would hope not, but I think underneath we are. You can't do what everyone else is doing. 
and children get that message very quickly. You know, it's funny when, when I am training a staff person to do something and they don't get it, I think it's my fault Yes, that I'm not explaining it right. And I need to try something different. So I always do things in multiple ways. Let me do a handout. Let me give you a video. Let me do live. Let me, let, let me give you something to try and then mark it up and hand it back to you. So we're always trying different ways for people to, you know, get the message and learn. Um, And School doesn't do that. It's like my way or the highway, you know? Um, But as a trainer, I always feel like it's my responsibility to deliver the information. And 99% of the time, if you don't learn, that's on me. It's because we expect early literacy to happen with ease. Even though we have all these case studies, we have acknowledged that children learn differently, that children come with language difficulties and all sorts of things. In the end, we still only want them to learn a particular way. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, there's a, a real recognition now that learning to read and language is really quite complicated, far more complicated than has been acknowledged in the past. But I'm not sure that many teachers have the level of knowledge that they need, particularly in first and second grade, to deal with children who aren't fitting normal. So in that case, what do you wish you had done differently with your son in his early years? And what would you like to tell parents? This is a two-part question. So what do you wish you had done differently? And what words of advice would you give parents today? Uh, First, I wished I had removed my son from school on day six and found a way to have support so that my in-laws or my mother could have helped me look after the younger one so that I could deal with Nicholas. I wished I had believed in him in first grade like I did when I was teaching him in second grade. Mm -hmm. First grade, I didn't think my son was smart. By the time, you know, I did that little Oxford experiment Uh, my mind of what this child was capable of was blown out of the water, even though it was incremental steps. Did I know Nicholas was going to get a PhD? No, because his learning was so slow. But I knew he could think. I started to believe in him. Mm -hmm. And that was the critical step, starting to believe him. Parents, find ways around the problem. The problem is far bigger than the child cannot decode. Right. There's, and there's, there are multiple ways around it. And connect with me. Ask me questions. Send me an email. I do mm. private tutoring, but I also am willing to talk to you, share what your child can do and can't do, and we can find a way through this, this maze. Oh, that's so generous, Lois. Thank you so generous and amazing um only another parent who's been through this would really understand yeah you know if i can do some for free but you know i do the private tutoring certainly i i expect to be paid for that but even just being able to send an email and say what do you think 
What mm-hmm. are my choices? What else can I do? And other things that um, parents can do. Um, so I hear throughout your journey that you didn't have a lot of confidence in yourself. So what can parents do to have more confidence in their own skills as a parent, as an advocate? Because you, you know, you backed down when that teacher got in your face. So, you know, what did you do to turn that around? I don't think quickly. Nicholas is very much like me that I have to walk away from the situation. But her words were instrumental in helping me uh, approach the problem differently. Mm-hmm. And although, you know, they're nasty, nasty, nasty words, they changed my life. Okay. And they allowed me to say, well, you know, so what? You can call him whatever you like. My son's not stupid. Let's teach him. That became, you know, you need that for a book anyway. Right. <laughs> didn't know that. So I want to ask you about your book, uh, Reverse, your memoir. Um, tell me what inspired you to write that, especially since writing for you is so hard. Mm-hmm. And I, I have that same experience. I'll, I'll mention that to you after. But tell me, like, what inspired you to write that? I thought my son's story just got better and better and better. And the other, the other component, we left our home in Brisbane, Australia. My husband, as I said, is an academic. We are at the top of the academic tree. And they, that school failed my son. Mm-hmm. We lived in England, Oxford, England, the centre of the academic world. And then, believe it or not, we moved to Lubbock, Texas. Every move made a difference to Nicholas. Mm-hmm. A child should never have to leave their school, let alone their state, to get an education. That was the first thing that made me, yeah, the, the, the extreme privilege that we faced to have my son learn to read. Because if we had never left Brisbane, I would not have had a leg to stand on. There's that test that I still have, low IQ, inability to learn anything. Imagine if you had just relied on that. Imagine your son, the PhD. And and let me read it here that I have written down. Your son is holding a PhD in applied mathematics from Oxford. There's, there's his picture that was taken on the day of graduation. Unbelievable. And see, this is the problem that I have with educators and others who, you know, do testing and make predictions about our children. Our children are limitless. At the age of six and a half. Not at 14 or 20, at six and a half. And then state designated that we send these children to school to fail for 10 years and expect them to come out as normal human beings. And then they segregate them. Yes. And separate them off into a program which 
yeah. you know, basically is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. And, and that, that is why I get back to the point of, well, when you get your diagnosis or your label, I wonder how good that does for you. Sometimes it comes with support and yeah. sometimes it just comes with, you know, a, you know, kind of like the death toll. So you, do you get the diagnosis of an intellectual disability or dyslexia or do you stay limitless you know the interesting part about doing an iq test on a six-year-old child particularly my son is that he had a language disorder so we're testing him in the very field that he cannot do yeah yeah we have all kinds of issues with children who are blind or deaf and hard of hearing, um, you know, physically challenged. There's just so many issues. Um, it, there's, there's a lot of trauma around labeling. Uh, I don't know. I totally agree. Anyway, I really hear you too about having to move and you being fortunate that you had the resources and the ability to do so and so many people being stuck but also want to get back to that whole point lois about you know being able to stick up for yourself advocate for yourself because many a parent would not they would just accept that diagnosis that determination that their child was whatever label stupid or you know had all those limits being placed on them and they would stop. Yeah. <clears throat> That's a really tough one because input changes things. And when you do get that input of low IQ, it was very hard for me to say anything. But, you know, I had, as I said, I had this incredible husband. And when I told him that, I was the one who went to the diagnostician. It wasn't him. He, he, I came home and said this, and he said to me, Nicholas can look like that on any given day. That's a lower bound. So he had the thought that Nicholas wasn't like that. And that was really nice for me to hear. Yeah. But it didn't change. It didn't change enough, you know. And I, we talk about moving. The moving happened not because we moved for Nicholas. We moved because of my husband's job. The moves happen by mm. accident. So everything okay. within my journey was an accident. That's why I wanted to write the book. Okay. And then okay. Nicholas, Nicholas got better and better and better. So what are your, um, as we kind of, kind of wind down here and we are, you know, really trying to give some you know, last pieces of advice to our families out there, our audience who are facing such challenges, the same challenges that you faced. And I want to really encourage everybody to read your book. Um, very, very um, inspiring, very, really inspiring is not the right word. It's motivating, I would say, more yeah. than anything. 
Um, As people are facing their own challenges and so many of us are in an educational system or a support system that seems to be at odds with the reason that it was created, right? Doesn't feel like the support system that it was meant to be. Um, How do we, uh, for our part as the parent, how do we turn that around? How do we be the advocate to make it that support system and get the most out of it that we can? We have to believe in our child. We have to believe that they are capable of doing things, number one. Okay. Irrespective of what's going on, you are capable of doing things and we have to find their strengths. Okay. Then we have to build on their strengths. Provide, you know, what I did in Oxford was by sheer accident, but the ability to provide experiences that were positive, that mm-hmm. allowed us to explore the world and then write about it, changed Nicholas's life and changed my life. So do yeah. any of those those components because emotions are attached to learning. We think literacy is about letters and sounds. That's one component. The rest is what emotions are we coming? Are they negative or are they positive? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. emotions impact the brain and brain development, brain growth and memory. Yeah, I mean, learning about the explorers, learning about Cook, that, that's a great story. I love it. Yeah. Getting him hooked and asking that next question and then that next question and diving deeper once you hooked him that was it that was it i didn't finish that story i talked about first grade didn't i with nicholas as an adult Mm -hmm. and i couldn't answer that question at the time so i just want to go back and finish that story sure and and then i said to him i can't deal with that now nick grade one we'll have to deal with that another time but tell me about the learning you and i did in oxford my son is 30. And instead of the tears, his his face lights up. And he said, I remember the poems you wrote for me. And he named the poems that I had written 20 plus years ago. And he said, the mapping, the mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. Mm-hmm. And then he started giggling. Like <laughs> a seven-year-old. And he said, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell. And I said, I Nicholas is that I can't remember what it was, but it was just so funny. Yes. This is the power of learning when we turn the learning around and engage the child. Mm-hmm. It's I didn't I didn't write about this in my book because I deemed that poem too poor to write about. Oh. Yet it was what Nicholas remembered and he wrote the ingredients and he said, you know, bird poo, two drops and and (laughs) rat snails and alien eyeballs. I mean, and the fact that he was still laughing over it. Oh, that's great. It's just, and he said, I can't remember what the ingredients were, but I just remember it being so funny. And that goes back to, I think it's, uh, you know, one of the authors who said, that we'll forget the words that we told them, but they'll never forget 
how you made them feel. And yeah. this, this is exactly what the learning did to Nicholas. It changed his life. And when I work with students now, I want that same um, emotion to come through in their learning. I want my kids to be so excited. Exactly. I had that same experience with my daughter, Caroline. I homeschooled for, for multiple years through middle school. And we did a, a board game about the Trail of Tears across the country. And it was so great. It was like, uh-oh, you know, uh, Native Americans, very unhappy, you know, go back three spaces <laughs> and, and all kinds of stuff, you know, rough winter. Um, uh, we, we grew some crops, you know, find, you know, five ears of corn. It was, it was so awesome. And, um, she still has it in a shoe box in yeah. her room. She's yeah. 22. Yeah. So, yes. um, yeah. story, isn't it? It, it's, it's funny. Um, and she's a different learner too. And she's kind of bumping her way through college. It's probably yeah. going to be a, five or six year adventure for her. She's probably not a PhD candidate, but it's okay. We're good. She's on her own journey. Um, but yeah. you know, it's it's that same sort of thing. Like uh, she just didn't get everything from reading a book when she was younger. This was, this was a lot of fun and yeah. it was really great. And it's, it's funny because um, you know, you got a lot of, you got a lot of negativity for doing the homeschooling. Yeah. People thought we were really weird. Yeah. But it worked for us, for sure. It, it was. It, no, people think we were, I homeschooled Nicholas for a year or six months or whatever. I actually homeschooled him for four months. And in that short period of time, you got so much mm -hmm. done. It's amazing. But, you know, you did a lot after that, though. Yes. You, you know, as much as you sent him to school, a lot of learning was going on at home. Hmm. A lot, a lot of learning. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think about tutoring, too, and I thought, could I tutor or have Nicholas tutored after school when he was in first or second grade? And the answer was no. He would not have done it. Yeah. He would really not have done it. And many tutors are too rigid. You know, they so they wouldn't he wouldn't have coped with it and and then I worry about my reaction what would I have said you know I'm spending this precious money on this child and he's not taking advantage of it no. that worries me <clears throat> so you know it, it's a tough tough gig when children don't fit normal well there's a very small group of people who do so well I absolutely adored the advice that you gave and you know I don't know that we can all relax we have so much anxiety over raising our kids Lois but at the same time I think what we can do is try not to fit them all into a box um, and we just kind of have to go with the flow because our kids kind of do teach us how to how to bring them forward and uh, you know I, I want us all to be more brave in speaking up for what our kids need Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing your book with the world, Reversed, a memoir. So good. I hope everybody will connect with you. We've got 
in the show notes, all of your contact information and a link to your book. And um, thank you again. It was so great to meet you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.